welcome everyone to Weird Growth, the podcast where we hear about the strange and often unpredictable journey which founders take. This episode, we have Josh Edis from April, which is a platform um, which enables brand-first embedded finance solutions uh, for brands, banks, and financial institutions. Um, they enable businesses to connect with financial products and create experiences which delights customers. Josh, thanks so much for being on Weird Growth. Thanks for having me, Cam. It's great to be here. It's terrific to have you. And thanks for giving up your time um, to share some of your story and can't wait to learn more about um, April and how you got to uh, the point that you're at now. Um, but please, could you introduce yourself and how have you come to do what you do? Yeah, thanks, Cam. Um, hi to all your uh, listeners today. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, Josh Edis, I'm one of the co-founders of, of April, previously known as, as LimePay. We recently went through a, a rebranding, as you can see up in the, uh, the yeah, corner here, right. uh, screen. Um, I'm originally uh, from Melbourne, Melbourne-born, um, moved to Perth, actually, for all the Perth um, audiences um, about uh, four years ago, back at the, the end of 2018, so escaped uh, Melbourne COVID. Uh, oh, wow. Lucky well, for me. <laughs> uh, so you moved to moved to Perth with uh, my family. I had two daughters uh, in in Perth. Mm -hmm. um, I've lived and and worked um, around the world, but um, have lived in Sydney and Melbourne um, on multiple occasions. I uh, lived in the United States. Lived in San Francisco for some time back in sort of 2012, 13, 14, and spent a lot of time building businesses uh, back and forth between Australia and and the US, and and also spent a bit of time. Um, working on some business partnerships in the UK and uh, Scandinavian markets. So um, it's Report a of living and, and working and um, travel experiences in largely 25, 25 odd years in, in the technology industry. That's a pretty broad um, mm. category, of course, but we can get stuck into you know, some of those um, experiences and journeys. Yeah. Would love to. Um, before we do get stuck into that, we have a little pop quiz that we ask at the start of Weird Growth. Um, and that is, hypothetically, if you were to start a new business again today from scratch, mm. what would it be? What problem will you be solving and who would you be solving it for? That's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many interesting um, sectors that I'd love to get my um, teeth stuck into. Um, there's only so many things um, or so many balls you can juggle at once. Yep. Um, but, you know, if, if it's coming from scratch uh, and had the learnings from the past, I think probably I'd like to get stuck into an area of um, healthcare. Right. Um, interesting. Big, complex um, kind of beast. Mm -hmm. um, may not necessarily start with healthcare for um, say humans, it could start with pets. Um, yep. For example, there's there's all sorts of um, problems that are worth solving for um, in that industry. But uh, my family has a heritage in in medicine and, and healthcare. Um, I haven't been a doctor or a surgeon um, like some of my siblings and cousins, but um, it's an area that um, I find fascinating. Uh, and you know, certainly it, it's it's a way that um, you know, I'd love to make an impact, a bigger impact on um, society. It's a real trend especially in australia health tech it's just enormous at the moment and i mean the last episode that we've just recorded it hasn't come out yet um was in the health space um 
in Perth as well, there's a lot of new health tech um, companies being funded and springing up around the place. It's obviously something which affects us all um, and, a, and a big um, traditional industry which is ripe for disruption and very conservative, understandably. So, yeah, that sounds yeah. fascinating, Josh. Love it. Thanks for that. Um, okay, well, maybe you could just give us a bit of background about the problem that you're solving with April. Mm. And originally Lime Pay. Yeah, sure. And happy to give a bit of um, historical mm. context on, on how we came to be. Thanks. Um, I mean, the, the vision for the company, um, and we've, we spent a lot of time really nutting this out and refining it over time, um, has always come from a place of um, driven by a, a desire to you know, solve a meaningful, impactful problem. And back in sort of 2016, 17, along with my um, co-founder and the original founder of LimePay, Tim Dwyer, who's in Sydney, mm -hmm. um, the, the genesis of, of the business was really around um, removing the friction or bringing brands closer to their customers and doing that by enabling uh, amazing, delightful customer experiences. At, uh, I suppose where, where we thought it would have the biggest impact, and that was the checkout. Yep. So initially the e-commerce checkout. We saw, and Tim saw um, through his own e-commerce ventures at that time, and I saw it through you know, a number of um, my ventures, there's a lot of friction at, at that last mile. And that's the least uh, where you can afford to have friction at the moment where someone's um, choosing to check out, mm. choosing their, their payment method, uh, and they don't want to be presented with too many options or too much friction at that, that point in time. Uh, and we thought say friction, I mean, what do you mean? Just for the people, for everyone listening, what, what do you really mean by friction there? Now, I suppose it comes down to the actual UI and design experience. So it's it can be, you can see a lot of um, confusing and messy checkouts around these days in the e-commerce world. Um, and, and we saw that first from firsthand experiences. And, and, and in my background around, particularly from an advertising technology um, and data platform management um, background, um, I thought there was no reason why you couldn't, why brands and increasingly um, financial institutions couldn't provide a more seamless um, checkout experience, whether that's enabling just pay now straight through payment or whether that's choosing to break your payments up into installments. Yep. Um, and that led to the, the growth of, of buy now, pay later, as we know, or other forms of, uh, of payment, whether that's in the you know Australian market or whether it's on the African continent or whether it's you know, in, in, in one of the um, you know, Asian markets. So for us, we thought if we, could, if we could put the brand first at that checkout experience and remove all these third-party buttons and options, right. it'll provide that flexibility and that choice for the end user, whether they're paying by a credit card or a debit card or a direct bank account or other form of payment, but, but really elevate that experience where the, the brand is first and foremost. And that means... Um, providing that seamless user experience all the way through from you know, homepage through the product selection and discovery right through to that checkout and beyond checkout. So taking that experience into that post-purchase experience on so enabling, providing a platform that enables brands to continue that seamless communication with their customers through whether it's email receipts or mobile receipts, payment reminders, everything branded. Yep. Under, their, under their company um, headline, if you like. So that, that gave birth to this concept of, and we we're really the pioneers at the time, LimePay was really a pioneer in white-labeled 
um, payments enablement or pay by installments, which um, you know grew um, dramatically, you know through that period of 2000 and really mm. 16, but particularly through 2020, 21, you know 22. So I, I suppose from a, a marketer's point of view, or even an e-commerce store owner's point of view, and the cust and their customers' experience, they get you know, the marketer or the e-commerce store owner goes to a massive amount of effort to convince somebody that their product is the best, you know, amongst a massive other options, uh, you know, amount of options that they have. Um, they get them through the process. They get them to the point where they're making a purchase decision. They get over that hump, buy now, go to the cart, and then the experience becomes a great big form to fill out contact details, to fill out address payment details it might be like a credit card field mm. and it starts to feel almost scary and you start to have second thoughts and right at the point where you want the experience to be as delightful as you say as possible it becomes what there's a lot of friction um, yeah and that can but, lead to yeah that can lead to abandonment of yep. the cart um, completely which is um you know like death by a thousand cuts to any kind of e-commerce or or retail operator with a digital presence um, and, and particularly becomes even more, um, that problem becomes, um, uh, I suppose, bigger when you start to introduce uh, alternative forms of payment, such as pay by installments or payment plans, because often you're needing to do um, identity checks for AML and CTF purposes, you need to do credit checks, uh, there might be other types of um, um, checks you need to do along that um, payment or that embedded finance journey. So. It's just absolutely mission critical that as a brand, uh, you stay true to, um, I suppose, delighting your customers all throughout that journey and, and not presenting them with, with too many options or, again, generically, too much friction mm. at that, that critical moment, particularly if that's a, a brand that has established a you know, really strong affinity and loyalty with its with its end customers. It might be maybe a big retailer with you know big box stores and big online commerce um, presence. And the last thing you want to do is, um, I suppose, dilute that that loyalty and that experience yeah. um, and all of that investment that you put into your brand and all the technology that actually enables you to, to deliver those you know, great experiences either in-store or online or um, out, in, out in the field. Mm. I suppose what happened... Um earlier on in the in the e-commerce sort of um, evolution of technology was you know 20 years ago you had to build your own checkout process and your own merchant sort of connections and things mm. and then tools like I suppose PayPal came along or um, Stripe and things like that but really what you were doing was outsourcing that part of the customer experience to a third party losing that control of the customer experience and then yeah. And then hoping that you know it still goes well, um, really. But you, the payoff was for ease of implementation from your point of view as a marketer or a or an e-commerce store owner. Um, yeah, I suppose um, it's 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 not as hard as it was. Right. <laughs> no, it's a snippet of code now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, with the rise and rise of um, the big the big platforms um, across you know the marketing and advertising world with with Google and of course. Amazon and Facebook or Meta, um, but the rise and rise of Shopify and and other big players, big commerce and the likes, Salesforce. It's becoming you know increasingly easy to manage all those different configurations and all those different third party plugins. Um, 
and, and, and our, we designed our platform, certainly more recent iterations of our platform to be very highly configurable and flexible in that regard so that, you know, you can, for example, you might want to be a big enterprise that has a bring your own payment processor and plug into our platform to utilize our front end um, uh, customization and personalization tools. Um, you might want to plug in and specific specifically to use April's credit risk engine um, to complement your existing um, financial um, checks or other third-party software systems. So it's designed to be very friendly in that regard, highly configurable and, and flexible whilst providing you know, all of the underlying security um, standards that, that, that come with that. So really? it, today that's um, in our business model, that's also evolved um, you know, from, from purely a transactional you know, payments platform um, to a business that is increasingly looking more like an enterprise software as a service or SaaS business. So um, that's a relatively new area of growth for, sure. for our business. Yeah, um, let's, let's chat like about that. Um, but that's, that's really fascinating that it's that, of that evolution. Um, but maybe stepping back, you alluded to, you know, like a, an extensive career in tech before mm. starting LimePay. How did, what was that? journey up to LimePay like and how did you come to that realization this was a really important problem that needed to be solved? Yeah, I suppose as, as it's, you know, 25 odd years in, in the um, tech sector more broadly, but um, I probably spent the best part of um, 90, 93, 94, right through to kind of 2010, 11, 12 in the ad tech, advertising tech and marketing tech. A pioneer. You might say, oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Back in back in the days when we were launching the the very first ever display advertising campaigns. Um, what did um, that look like then? Uh, <laughs> you, you know what? Uh, some of those first banner ad campaigns were also some of the most successful. Uh, um, I remember selling campaigns to the likes of Seek. Really, literally dealing with the founders um, back yeah. in the day. Um, Andrew Bassett sitting down and actually mapping out what that display ad campaign and creative should look like. They you know, little HTML drop-down boxes so you can search for a job within the banner. Wow. Um, quite innovative um, at the yeah. time. So um, the, the big focus and the theme running through um, my career and whether it's been in the ad tech industry or it's been in the identity and data management space um, or um, in the embedded finance and, and payment sectors has always been a fascination for, I suppose, how humans interact with digital um, platforms and experiences and how um, brands can utilise technology platforms uh, and indeed media platforms and commerce platforms um, to create more meaningful, more impactful um, experiences between the brand and the customer, whether that's a business-to-business um, experience or whether it's a you know, business to consumer or direct to consumer um, business model. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, in those early days working with big uh, media uh, companies, um, for example, help, help to build out you know, one of the biggest advertising networks and publishing networks in Australia as part of Telstra's, Telstra's subsidiary at the time, um, which was before it was census, it was Pacific Access. Right. These were the days when the yellow pages and the white pages were a, um, a $2 billion you know, revenue juggernaut. Mm -hmm. um, yep. uh, and if you didn't get in the yellow pages, it was not happy Jan. 
Yeah, not happy, Jan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and just only a few short years later, um, with the advent of of Google and that little white search box. Yep. Um, you know things. Business model. Yeah, and before before the advent of um, Facebook, things things um, there was a lot of innovation going on at that time because a lot of new tech um, coming to the fore, particularly in the um, data management and advertise ad serving um, space. Um, but my interest in that was really um, wasn't so much in the you know the underlying tech per se, but what you could do with that tech um, as a as a media owner or as a, a brand yep. to build better experiences, whether it's you know, delivering video advertising or email advertising um, or whether it's, you know, smarter, more efficient distribution of content uh, across, you know, multiple platforms. So I was always kind of fascinated with how you get that to scale. Yeah, oh, it would have been so exciting at the time to imagine what was possible. And even with reasonably rudimentary by today's standards, tools, you could achieve a completely different customer experience that no one would have ever had in the past. And yeah. even just down to being able to measure behavior in response to an ad, like that was virtually impossible before. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I suppose that that journey evolved um, for me, at least from originally in display advertising and directory advertising and moved much deeper into the search okay. uh, advertising technology sector. Um, it got involved in, in building and launching um, some, some pretty successful search engines back in the day in, in Australia. Google hadn't quite conquered the world and Yahoo was still a major um, competitor. Yep. Um, it was like a and um, Ask Jeeves was probably the yep. one. All those players, yep. So um, I didn't just dabble. I got, got very deep into that, that world of search advertising, um, search engine um, discovery, and that, that exposed me to a whole range of really powerful um, data interrogation tools, real-time bidding um, tools, a lot of, lot of exposure to um, fraud mitigation and, and um, fraud um, management tools, um, a lot of which was, was coming out of the, the, the US market, yep. um, particularly in the, in the online advertising space where there was an enormous amount of fraud going on back oh, in I can um, imagine competitors like, have just been setting up bots to click on competitors ads or um it's a, still a big issue sell. today and i suppose it's evolved into you know um fraudulent identities um hijacking of, of identities um for, for e-commerce and, uh, and it's, that's that's morphing into a whole range of different sectors but online advertising was really where all, a lot of innovation was going on in that in that space and you kind of fast forward into the when Google had listed and um, Yahoo was already listed and you had other new players coming into the space, Facebook down the track, a lot of those technologies that I was exposed to and was was um, um, helping to commercialize at the time in, in the advertising sector were subsequently acquired by um, the Googles uh, and the Facebooks um, and the Amazons of, of the world. So, you know, that they originally built their wonderful um, you know, Google, for example, um, you, you know, really built a wonderful business around search. But most of the other components that they um, um, put in place over the years, over the last decade or so, were mostly acquired businesses. Yes. From DoubleClick. Um, yep. They acquired for whatever it was, a couple of billion dollars back in the day. And um, that was the platform for the display advertising. Um, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right, and now that's the essentially the the Google advertising yeah. platform of of choice. 
Facebook similarly, you know, they acquired a, um, a competitor ad serving business. I think it was called Atlas yep. back in the day. So most of these technologies um, were, were built and then integrated in over time um, to form what is today or still remains, you know, really the biggest revenue engine for these businesses, Google, Facebook, and even today, Amazon. Um, fastest growing um, business unit um, for many years. It's been their advertising. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, yep. and that's really, that really um, got me very interested in how um, how data on people and their behaviours and their transactions was being used by media companies, ad tech companies, uh, and increasingly data data focused companies to to essentially better understand human behaviour, how to better commercialise. Um, or build uh, more effective um, commercial business models in e-commerce and content distribution, um, and of course um, in, the, in in other big spaces today around video video advertising and syndication. What do you say to people who say that the amount of data that companies have on their customers and um, the personalization and things that they're able to do? Um, what do you say to people who think that's a little bit creepy or unethical? Um, look, I think, you know, it's a highly sensitive kind of topic given the, the data breaches that have occurred in Australia mm. over recent months. And, and um, most of those appear to be subject to, you know, what, what the, I suppose the final um, reports will say, but it yeah. appears to be the result of um, combination of, human error and, and also some you know, pretty intelligent um, outsider uh, yes. uh, attacks. attacks yeah. uh, I think, look, the, the onus is, is very much on um, both the end consumer or citizen and also the, the, the brand to protect their mm -hmm. own identity and the data that is attached to that, to that identity. Um, I, I can't make, um, you know, any judgments necessarily without evidence on what happened at, at Medibank or Optus yeah. Um, yeah. or the myriad of other organizations that are getting hacked and leaking data on a daily, hourly um, basis in, in, in this market and around the world. But I think for, for brands, really, there's, there's, um, you know, there's, there's a myriad of very good vendors out in market that can help them you know, better manage and secure and lock down that data, not just within its you know static environments, but help them to move successfully, move and, and make that data more portable and shareable um, with their own end customers, but also their partners as well. Um, so, lack of understanding of the technologies that are available to these brands today is, is it's not an excuse. Great. The lack yeah. of understanding of security standards and privacy standards is not an excuse. Um, and I think you know executives and boards um, are accountable, and they know that they're on the hook. Um, for um, for these these types of data breaches or data leaks, there's there's simply no excuse yep. um, uh, today for not keeping a you know really strong lockdown on any form of customer data, let alone personal data such as drivers' licenses and mm. passports and Medicare IDs. I completely agree. I guess my view on it, and uh, you know, from more, more of a marketing and advertising point of view, is what this does allow us to do as marketers is create delightful experiences and serve up messages to potential customers, which are relevant to them, um, which 
aren't spam, but are actually tailored to that user's behavior and interests. And so rather than your online experience feeling spammy and untailored and generic, mm. it feels much more um, well warm, I think, and and relevant to what you're interested in. And I, I can only say that being a, a good thing if obviously the security questions um, are answered and, and definitely there's got to be a, a focus on that. But um, I would much prefer to have a, a, a great experience which is which is tailored for me rather than a generic one for everybody, the way that TV and billboard yeah. advertising is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so would I. I mean, who doesn't appreciate a more tailored, personalised experience in on Netflix, for example, where you get hmm. recommendations put forward? Similarly, in an e-commerce environment where in Amazon, which is you know, obviously has huge rafts of, of data to help personalise and customise um, recommendations and and, and value add-ons. Um, yeah. So, and ultimately, yeah, Amazon's, yeah, yeah, great example. It makes your life better because you have the ability to be served up, um, you know, recommendations, which you might not have even had the sort of foresight to think about yourself. And yeah, it's a much better consumer experience. Yeah, and I think about the um, what can sometimes be a pretty broken experience um, in, and not to highlight any specific sector, but um use healthcare for example like where you know you whether you're going to the dentist or the physio um, or your gp or a specialist you're constantly filling out paper forms um mm. to explain you know your medical history uh which is bound to um it's bound to create all sorts of you know human errors and inaccuracies let alone the inefficiencies that, that that go on in that just that very basic data collection process. There's there's no unified form of data collection, let alone verification of of that data. And there's this constant um, you know chaos being kind of created in that in that sector. And then you can similarly look at it in the veterinary and you know pet care industry. Yep. That the data isn't isn't being created in a in a format or a standard that is um, you know transportable. Um, and persistent um, and accurate from from the outset. So you know that's a that's just a huge problem. So then it becomes very frustrating when you you know you have to change GPs or you move into state. Yep. Um, move over data entry over again, and you're telling the same story multiple times. Yeah, and that's you know that's a personal experience. Well, I've been you know through 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 many times having moved into state uh, back yeah, and just, forth yeah, state right. a few times. Um, and, and but that would apply across um, you know a number of different um, industries and, and sectors where it's just just get the 101 basics of um, data collection, data management, data security in in place. Um, if you once organisations and, and governments and, and non-government bodies and not-for-profits are, are, are dealing with a common kind of data and identity um, code set, if you like, or a data spine, mm -hmm. um, and assuming all of the appropriate um, security and privacy standards and regulations wrapped around that, then I think you know there's, we can create a much more innovative, uh, more exciting um, economy um, for, for, for future entrepreneurs. Yeah, society-wide. A um, bit of a tangent, but a startup that I was a co-founder of um, about six years ago um, was looking to solve the challenge of online voting uh, in, in state and federal elections in Australia. 
And it's a question, my past life is in politics, and it's a question I was always asked is why do we still use a piece of paper and a pencil to mark our vote and then have that manually hand counted by people in a big warehouse and why does it, I think in 2016 it took two weeks to determine the outcome of the federal election, who the Prime Minister was going to be. And we set out to try to solve that. We, spent, we raised some money and spent about a year building a platform using um, blockchain, which was quite, you know, innovative at the time. <laughs> and the answer we eventually discovered was that it's really not about a technology. It's not a question of the technology that will work. And we've had that for years. It's not really even about blockchain, but it's about um, our own personal digital identities and do we have a consistent system and is it secure on a personal level? And it, what I think we discovered was that individual, I guess, cybersecurity knowledge that the average Australian has isn't enough to be secure enough to say that this is a, would be an airtight process. Um, and, you know, voting in elections is probably arguably higher stakes than finance systems you know you can replace a dollar in a bank account but you can't you know you don't want to have a, a an election stolen so to speak a much higher stakes and so until we can have that sort of i guess digital literacy amongst the general population online voting is probably going to be difficult to do yeah no absolutely spot on i mean you don't last thing we need is our our um, future generations coming out of school and having any kind of um, I suppose mistrust at its at its um, I suppose most extreme end in in the systems um, that support our you know, democracies, which is the voting, yes, um, or the right the right to vote. So, so um, display and search ads, late nineties, early thousands. You're sort of in that space, and that took you around the world. You did some work in in the Bay Area in the US. What was that like at that time? Yeah, loved. Um, I mean, I went back and forth to the US, um, predominantly um, San Francisco and, and New York um, throughout the 2000s and right up to you know, present day um, and, and lived lived in the Bay uh, yeah. for um, close to a couple of years. Yep. Um, back when the Aussie dollar was actually worth $1.10. Um, oh, that's right. We've been on parity for a while there after 2008. 2013, 12, 13, mm. around that time. Um, real um, eye-opener in the sense that, um, you know, really a, a mark of respect in, in the Valley was um, not so much whether you'd had, you know, knock it out of the ballpark success, um, but just having demonstrated that you'd, You'd have a track record at starting something up from scratch, solving an important problem. Whether or not you were actually um, successful at a commercial level or not, and was often seen as kind of secondary. It was just the fact that you had a meaningful problem to solve for. Um, you had a real passion and a domain expertise to to, to leverage, and and you wanted to be a part of um, a, a broader, I suppose, technology uh, entrepreneurial. Um, community that is that is so um, prevalent in in the bay yeah but the level of uh, i think just just support was um immeasurably valuable you know whether it's rocking up to a, a social drinks event after work or it's heading along to a 
you know, venture capital event, or perhaps um, you know, I went along to a number of the university events down at um, Stanford and participated in roundtables there with, with also government representatives um, and trade officials from the Aussie government. Um, and just just the the um, the scale of um, support, yep. um, whoever you are in in, in that area, was um, phenomenal. Uh, you know, whereas conversely, at that time, and I think it's improved in in Australia, that that concept of um, you know giving uh, entrepreneurs a hard time, potentially knocking over you know some of those taller poppies. Mm -hmm. um, back in the day, I, th I think we've, we've we've moved on and become more mature. Um, industry and society um, kind of since then um, but um, the the level of um, I suppose support for risk-taking yes in that in that environment um, and perhaps some of that you know has got a little bit out of control um, in in recent years and we've we've seen the we've seen the um, results of that and continue to see the results of that but um, nonetheless it was just a an amazing experience. So, if any listeners are out there who have a you know, business or a business model that they think um, um, they could they could start in Australia and scale up and take into the North American market, um, you know, go for it. Um, yeah. Grab the borders with both horns and go yeah. after that opportunity because you will be given that opportunity if you've got the right um, you know offering and, and you're solving an important problem, whatever sector it happens to be in. But it's it's a, it's um, you know, it's a big investment of your time and your and your life. So when you make that commitment, um, know that you know things aren't going to happen overnight. Yeah, market sure. that big. But you are opening yourself up to a market which is what fifteen times the size, or at least ten times the size of, of the Australian market, um, and the and as you say, sort of that mentality or that culture of big things can grow very quickly. If you yeah. if you put everything into it, yeah, and I think Australians have have proven time and time again in the technology sector that you know, we, we we punch above our weight, mm. uh, we produce and ship um, amazing software. Um, we're pretty good on the commercial side too. Um, we're hardworking, um, tenacious, um, and you know pretty good natured um culture so yeah. and, and that really gels really well in, in the valley it gels well right across um the us and, and other markets yeah uh, i think that's um being tainted in, in in any way over over the years perhaps we're not as um as aussies are not quite as um you know the new thing in town as they once were but, yep. but nonetheless um you know it's uh it's it's a great great place to do business and a great place to you know start a new business or scale up uh, a new business yeah amazing no no i know plenty of um aussies even even western australians who've who've um you know done done really well over there and then come home uh, um on the back of their success and contributed back into the ecosystem here mm. um, and that's just and it just helps us helps us grow even even bigger and it's a snowball effect so it's very cool yeah. yeah and there's more and more programs um that are becoming available uh in australia and at a state level to help you with that you know, that export market development push. Yep. Um, obviously, Austrade has you know, various programs, but the individual states, certainly Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, have a very strong presence, um, both the East Coast and West Coast and Mid-America and elsewhere around the globe um, and throughout Asia. Um, Western Australia is, you know, it's still pretty early days sure in, that, in that regard. Yep. Um, but 
we can look towards um, the success stories, uh, what's working, what's not working um, across the other state governments uh, and federal governments to, to help create, you know, similar programs that are, you know, um, well suited to and, and, and designed or co-designed along with private enterprise to, to support, you know, the West Australian um, startup and entrepreneurial um, community. Yeah. It's, it's great that there's a healthy competition, I suppose, between amongst the states in Australia um, for attracting the entrepreneurial talent. Mm. Um, we were in, we did a bit of an East Coast tour last year, and um, Queensland in particular stood out. It just seems like there's a real kind of buzz um, happening there in Brisbane, and and a similar mentality, I suppose, to, to West Australians as well. Um, but you know everywhere in, in, in Australia, I think we're sort of realising the importance of this sector and state governments everywhere are stepping up to support it. Um, yeah, it's it's anyway, it's about, it's about the entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, uh, that's it. That's it. And, and look, there, um, all the states have, you know, many great attributes. Um, you know, if you look at um, you know, Queensland and, and Western Australia, I suppose what they share is, you know, a couple of sectors there, food and agricultural tech, for example, are you know, huge um, areas of activity and investment, but they're relatively small in terms of the amount of private capital, venture capital that's going into those, those kind of next wave yep. technologies, kind of that horizon two, horizon three um, technologies that are looking out five, 10, kind of 15, 20 years. Um, and of course, mining and resource tech mm. uh, in, in Queensland and, and Western Australia, um, certainly plenty more money going into into those um, sectors, but still so much more opportunity to to evolve and develop and become real hubs of innovation at a global level. Um, what, whether... what else do you think would help us achieve that? What else do you think is needed? Uh, I, I think in, in Western Australia, is that the question? Well, yeah, I mean, from a WA point of view, selfishly, I suppose, but, you know, Australia-wide as well. Um, I think there's a great opportunity and, and it's a real challenge to help sharpen the narrative what is it that um, Western Australia uh, and Perth as a metropolitan, a growing metropolitan city stands for? Right. What does it really mean to um, entrepreneurs looking in from, from overseas and investors looking in from overseas and from interstate? What do you stand for? We know you've got beautiful beaches and you've got great weather and that's they're really key attributes and you need yes. to communicate those because um, people want to live and, and work uh, in a great environment, in a great community, and even better if it's got weather weather as, as wonderful as Perth does. Um, and so I think, you know, that the state government, um, perhaps in combination with the federal government and some some key partners in in some of those industries I mentioned, food and agricultural tech, mining and resources, yep. um, need to, you know, kind of step up to the plate, um, put more money in, <laughs> put more capital in behind supporting the local entrepreneurs. I know there's some, some programs and activity there, but it seems that you know, the, the government's pretty spread pretty thin in terms of the, you know, just the people resources that right. oh, um, it's, right. it's throwing yeah. yeah. you go to, I was in um, the US in April and went to one of the um, just casual drinks, sundowner events in San Francisco and, um, Without any doubt, you know, I knew there's the trade representatives from the Victorian government, Queensland government, New South Wales government. Um, some of these representatives and, and diplomats have been there for, for a decade or two decades. 
uh, and all the founders there, you know, by name. Wow. You know, it seems so very, very done from a you know, perspective. Great, great, great kind of community going on there. Yeah. In in San Francisco, but it's it's also building, you know, in Boston, it's in Colorado, it's in New York, it's Chicago, depending on the sectors that um, where there's you know more of a specific focus um, over there, but no, no representation from from Western Australia. All right. Um, and so that's that's another, you know, that's an opportunity. Mm. Um, you've got to have boots on the ground in order to build those relationships yep. um, from a trade perspective. Um, but just to just to be there as a bridge to help, um, I suppose, connect the dots between Western Australian entrepreneurs that have opportunity and see an opportunity to export a you know great um, product or um, um, piece of software into into the North American market, or it could be you know UK or Asian market. Yep. I, I can't um, underestimate the, the difference um, it can make to have you know that strong representation. Um, in market with with people um, who will, will 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 really lift do a lot of heavy lifting for you to help mm. you make those connections and those programs exist at that state level. Yep. Yeah. Relationships. Uh, New South Wales and and Victorian. Um, although I've you know been living the past four years in Western Australia, April uh, has been a Sydney based company and therefore has been able to leverage New South Wales government um, programs, export programs into UK. Uh, Singapore as a hub into Asia uh, and into into the US, um, and, and, and they're still yeah. relatively early stage um, programs, but um, they really make a, a big difference. Um, if only just to focus um, your founders and your teams on a specific market and to actually put yourself into um, an actual program to get your go to market strategy really better down. Uh, and to help you um, make those early connections yeah. on the ground in market. So much more helpful than going in cold and trying to make all those connections yeah. and relationships from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for going on that tangent with me. It's a really important conversation because that is the way that businesses and startups created here are going to become global, really, is cracking the American market. So, yeah, really yeah. important. Yeah. Back on your journey, you identified that this was that this finance problem um, or opportunity is, is a big problem that's needed need to be solved. How did you come to that realization and what was the process like to saying, okay, I want to do something about this? Mm. Uh, and again, it's always been a, a, a co-journey with Tim. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. In, in Sydney. Um, Who's who was I suppose as, and as co-founders, this is important to the the kind of backstory. Yeah, he had a really clear vision and visual. Okay, what that experience <clears throat> should look like kind of had a combination of um, you know architectural design, industrial, um, property development, and and, and um, exposure into those industries, working with some really um, um, wonderful brands. And so he and he'd run a couple of e-commerce. Um, businesses of design so i really so had that first-hand experience from that i guess e-commerce owner's point of view of what that's right and running marketplaces and representing other brands um it had a very um, strong sense of um, what that um, brand experience should look like and feel like yep. um, across across all channels and hence um and his his exposure to this complexity or i suppose what we called it Made it, um, called it a, a checkout spaghetti. 
Yeah, okay. The king yeah. to check out spaghetti. Um, yeah. And I thought, well, hey, if I could, if we could build a solution. At that time, we weren't thinking, um, you know, payments or buy now, pay later or paying installments. We were really just thinking for, if we can, if we can um, help brands to um, deliver a better experience at that critical moment, at that, at that checkout, then what are the benefits that will be attributed to solving that problem for the brand and the end customer? Um, and if we could solve for those problems, then surely that would have a value and that value could help us build a more meaningful and um, durable business model. And so that led us to some, some kind of key foundations around the startup of the, the business and its, its reason for being. And that was really around, you know, helping, um, connecting brands to their, to their customers, which led to ownership of the, the customer experience, which is all critical to brands, ownership of the data. So don't let that customer data leak out to third parties. That's probably your most valuable asset, that proprietary or first party um, data. Yep. Um, and, and we thought that if, if you had full control over that experience, full control over the data flows, um, and you were providing a level of choice um, to your end customers that um, was fulfilling you know, either a demand they were either expressing to you or the market was was driving them to, to bring to you, then that should result in um, greater loyalty, um, higher purchase, repurchase rates, um, should lead to um, lower um, you know, basket abandonment levels. Yeah, better conversion rate. Mm -hmm. better conversion rate and that should ultimately lead to higher lifetime um, value higher lifetime um, revenue over time um, back in 2020 we actually um, engaged commissioned uh, forester research to conduct a study really with one of our e-commerce merchants to to prove um, that the white label or embedded checkout solution um, drove higher lifetime value uh, than other third-party um, payment choices. In particular, there were two or three other uh, buy now, pay laters on offer in that, in that checkout flow for this particular e-commerce merchant. And then there was the, the white-labeled um, branded version. And it showed that, um, and that that data was taken over a historical data, um, forward-looking data, and was modeled by Forrester Research to demonstrate um, that uh, a white-labeled or embedded checkout would drive double the lifetime value over, a, wow. I think it's modeled over a three, minimum three year kind of period wow. versus versus um, the other um, third party um, payment payment choices. So in other words, it, it's highly valuable to own that customer experience. It's very important to um, to keep control of that data and not leak it out to, to third parties, particularly at, at that time, it was the message we were trying to communicate was, yes, provide your customers with choice, but understand that that doesn't come without consequences when mm -hmm. you take that data out transaction data um, customer data behavioral data and, and the likes out to a third-party marketplace which is what the bmpls were operating at that time they use that data to then um, acquire merchants that are competitive to you to sell other products that are competitors to yours they don't have your brand customer loyalty at their heart they're marketplaces they're in the business of driving driving scale Yep. Uh, and really uh, sitting sitting alongside other forms of um, digital acquisition um, channels such as search and social 
and, and, and other channels. Mm. So it took time and money to kind of invest in that story and build it out. Um, today, that's kind of fast forward and it looks more like um, and sounds more like, hey, here's a suite of solutions that enable you to, to uh, essentially control that. Um, that suite of solutions, payment solutions, finance solutions, wherever the customer is, whether it's at the checkout, whether it's in store, mm -hmm. or whether it's a you know a virtual terminal on your mobile on your mobile phone. How did you reach your very first customers with LimePay? <laughs> uh, uh, it was to hustle, really. <laughs> yep. Real, real hustle. There was, you know, it certainly. Um, I spent most of my time in the um, behind the scenes, really dealing with the commercial operations and fundraising and all the the very unsexy stuff that that, mm -hmm. that nobody sees going on behind the scenes. But we had a team of other hustlers, so to speak, in in Sydney, you know, hitting the phones and um, getting out there and, and just um, doing everything to win those initial foundation customers um, across a number of you know e-commerce sectors and. Many of those customers, I think probably, I hasten to say, maybe even 100% of those customers are still on our platform today. Very, very low um, level of churn rate um, in, in, in the April business. So well, it makes really sense. Because, initially, it's the hustle. Yeah, because it's a, a very difficult sort of inertia problem that you would have to overcome because, yeah. hey, like this thing that is critical at the core of your business allows you to take payment from your customers. Um, we think we've got a better way of doing it. It's going to be very, you know, it's quite a big commitment for you to change it, but we think it's going to improve your business. So it's actually uh, a, probably quite a challenge to sell. But then once you do get the switch to happen, then you're also very sticky. So that's right. And and we certainly, um, you know, became very sticky. I mean, that, that, I'm not, not going to mix words. That came at a, at a price and a cost. You know, we had to be competitive, and in some cases, we needed to, um, you know, cut ourselves below below our competitors. But it was the early stages, and we're reasonably well funded, so we felt confident that over time, and as the product and the value proposition and the offering evolved, and our ability to demonstrate that value back to our end and customers evolved, we'd be able to to really refine and optimize, I suppose, the unit economics over time and if i fast forward you know three years from from those early days of hustle yep. um and doing anything really to, to to get the or nearly anything to get the sale um that the business has a very very tight focus on its key metrics um it has a very tight understanding of how each one of those dials can have an impact on either revenue growth or cost reduction or um, you know net profit margin um, optimization you know it's it's about it's about you know 0.001 percent um, improvements and optimization here there and everywhere that add up to um, one or two um, basis point additional margins um, and then when you start to evolve that business model to a point where you say actually we're providing more value than just facilitating a transaction this software is very unique and extremely valuable in terms of driving insights and data into the, the, the customer organization to help them make better business decisions, better investment decisions, better marketing decisions. And that's what we're doing today. This, this data is, has been put to work within our own um, in, environment, but also pushing it into our customers' environments um, so they can um, improve improve their, their business and, and the way that they serve their customers as well. 
So the underlying data asset, because you're not letting it leak out, you're right. taking control of the experience uh, and all the different transaction points and flows. Um, that that has a tremendous you know overall uplift um, impact on our end customers. And what's an example of how do you scale that initial hustle, the the grind of just getting in front of people and just getting you yeah. know your product into users' hands? How do you take that to make that a scalable business model? Because I imagine over time that's not sustainable. No, it's not. No, it's not sustainable over time. Um, we really had to evolve, you know, that that initial um, hustle to um, you know gradually a more sophisticated. Um, sales and marketing engine room, if you like. Um, I mean, there were the basics, put in place the right systems for tracking and reporting of all the activity of the sales team yep. and the post-sales team right across through customer success and onboarding. Um, we used HubSpot amongst other tools um, okay. for, for, for managing and segmenting and tracking all of that activity and all that data. I think we continue to use that um, tool today amongst others. Um, but if I fast forward to where we are today, um, there's a much finer focus um, from both a strategic but also a, a financial and economic perspective on those sectors and those particular brands within those sectors that are capable of driving um, sustainable unit economics for the business. Um, so conversely, we know there are certain sectors uh, and hyper-competitive um, areas within e-commerce and, and payments more broadly that where we simply cannot compete. Um, there's the incumbents are too big, the unit economics um, um, uh, 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 would, would just sink our business, right? So you've got to, you, you move on from that initial, initial hustle and um, we put a lot of effort into winning some, some marquee customers at the time, such as um, Domain uh, and the property vertical, Accor, um, the hotels group. Oh, yeah. Uh, more recently, um, Reese, the national um, plumbing and hardware um, supplier, and as as we've as we've evolved and and brought on onboarded, um, you know, bigger customers in bigger verticals, we've we've um, been able to generate a great deal more data and insights into um, how our how our technology um, performs and where it, where it has a really meaningful impact on our end customers' um, performance, and then we take that. Take those insights, and um, I mean, every quarter we're we're off as a team and analysing performance, and all the data is, is is there. You know, you're dealing with facts, you're dealing with truth, you're not dealing with assumptions so much anymore as to what's working within yep. your sales and your marketing funnel. You're, you're just dealing with facts. Yeah, great. Um, if you've got a team that's that's um, you know able to to collaborate openly and uh, and challenge each other around, you know, because um, you can't do everything right. You, you you've got to you got to win. Yeah. You got to play to win. Work out where you're going to um, um, succeed and, and drive um, the business towards you know future profitability. And that was that was a conversation we started having you know 18 months ago, or so before um, you know powder started drying up and new capital started drying up. Um, we started scenario modeling what we needed to do across the business to to mature um, as an operation, to mature as a team, uh, and to to refine and sharpen up. Uh, I think. The way we approach the business on a day-to-day basis. Um, so an example of that is, I mean, we've always been very um, studious, I suppose, and disciplined around our reporting uh-huh. internally, but particularly to our investors. 
um, quarterly reporting. Um, it's moved into like a live live environment, much like you know an ASX reporting. Um, uh, Almost like a dashboard setup. Yeah, there's stuff. a huge. Um, we've got you know significant you know dashboard analytics um, um, running behind the business. We, we share all those key metrics with our investors on a quarterly basis. Um, yeah. I think we're at a level now where I mean you can just, just pick up your phone and log into the, the dashboard and everything's at your fingertips in pretty much near near real time. So no one could could claim they don't know what's <laughs> what's going on in the in the From business. investor's point of view. There, yeah, that's that's Big very good. Moment. But that's now a default setting yep. in the business. So where do you go from from there? Um, uh, it enables you to um, really sharpen up your your focus on where the next next big opportunities are going to be, and also where you're not going to play. Just as important to to have real clarity around where you're not going to play, um, where the competition is either um, going to take you out, or your, your ability to really penetrate in a meaningful way to a particular segment is perhaps limited or you just can't get enough data um, yep. to really justify any significant investment. Sometimes it's it's better to do less um, than than more. Um, well, as the Americans say that, you know, the riches are in the niches. So yeah, you can... <laughs> and it's true. And then, and as you go, you go, yeah, as you, you go into the US, yeah, as you go to a market like the US... Um, um, late last year, I spent or mid last year, I spent a lot of time building out our international go-to-market strategy, which is a plan on a page essentially. Mm. Um, and we use a number of different methodologies, and um, I suppose. What's an example of something that would be in a in a go-to-market strategy? Um, well, from an international perspective, um, obviously, you need to understand what markets, geo markets, are actually going to be a good fit yes. for your product or your yeah. business model. Um, for your culture, for your mm. wife, um, um, the way in which you, you know, and what you stand for. So you decide we're going to target, you know, the US market, UK, similar kind of markets to Australia globally. Well, we had to, as a, as a, I suppose payments technology, um, but also emerging um, kind of SaaS part of the business model. Not just look at the geo market dynamics. We need to look at the competitive environment and whether or not, you know, where we positioned ourselves in that context. We need to look at um, some of the, the data available at a segment level to really understand the value of any particular segment. Say, for example, let's use that Reese example who operate in the United States market. Um, what does the plumbing and hard plumbing and, and, and um, bathroom supply industry look like? Yeah. Um, what are some of the um, adjacent industries? Might be um, sliding doors and windows. Right. Might be blinds. Yep. Um, huge multi-billion dollar sectors within themselves. But when you look deeply at them, you can actually see that there's high concentrations. Mm. There might be potential client, like really target clients in that in that sector. Yeah, that's it. So you're not seeing thousands or tens of thousands of e-commerce players in a particular vertical. You're seeing two or three, four or five players in a particular state. Nice. And then as you look into using the US again as an example, but we did the same in in um, um, the UK and throughout Western Europe and Asia, we looked at the legal and regulatory environment to understand what would be some of the barriers that we would have to overcome in order to operate or have a license to operate within that market. And then we looked at the, the, um, the broader technology sector and the enablers that could help us fast track and solve through some of those problems. So for example, we didn't want to become a reg tech company but we knew there were reg uh, regulatory technology companies and specialists in the US and the UK and throughout Europe 
that could we could plumb our technology platform into and they could fast track our way to the US market at a federal and individual state level. And so we'd go through and actually map out who were those players, what were their, what were their commercials um, and what impact would it have on our speed to market and what would be the cost of doing business and how would that impact our unit economics at a fairly high level as we thought about prioritizing those markets. And then finally get together as a team and actually debate you know, what, what's the readiness of the team and the organization to actually take that on, not just from a capital perspective, but, you know, do, do we have the skill set around us? Has anyone worked in that particular market that we can glean experience from? Do we have people in the team that are prepared to up and shift themselves into another market to take their experience here and go and be those initial boots on the ground? Um, so a lot of uh, uh, you know, months of work. Yeah. Analysis, um, More than just a one-page go-to-market plan there's a hell of a lot yeah. going to it yeah and then and then post covid um, getting on airplanes yeah. and doing the in-person meetings and this is the great thing about i think a lot of aussie tech companies is that that passion and desire to you know just get on a plane and go and press the flesh go to the trade events but more importantly you know go and reach out and get those highly targeted um, prospective customer prospective partner meetings um, because most people, if you you know follow a you know polite and professional kind of approach, um, which needs to be personalised, don't don't use LinkedIn as a blast. People do it on a one-to-one, highly personalised opt-in or double opt-in basis. Find someone who can introduce you on a warm basis, such as a government official at Austrade, or if it's from one of the other states, and that and you'll find that um, they will warmly um, work with you to to give you that softer landing, but you've got to make the commitment to, to go either. So that was kind of how we went about go to market, um, part science, part art. Well said, Josh. Um, just quickly. So you, you um, alluded to the, the rebrand from LimePay to April. What can you tell us about that? What triggered that? Yeah, it wasn't a um, wasn't an overnight um, process. That's that's for sure. Um, a lot of stakeholders involved in that that process. The conversations probably, um, honestly, they're, they're probably ongoing from 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 the beginning. You know, right through to um, probably early last year when the process kicked off in in earnest that we were actually going to run a process to look at um, the future of the, the brand itself and the positioning. Um, We've, had, we've always had great relationships with our customers and with our investors and, and other business partners and tech partners. Um, we certainly didn't, we weren't fielding necessarily any negative um, feedback, if you like, um, certainly not directly around line pay. But for us as an organisation and having done a lot of, I suppose, um, thinking and debate and analysis around, well, what do we stand for? Um, as we head into this world of embedded finance um, technology solutions, what does that really, you know, mean to us as a team? And how do we best represent, you know, the values that are inherent in our organisation, our solutions, um, in the broader market? And uh, again, we ran a process, yes, um, to to you know objectively um, kind of survey and assess where we thought we were at and what we thought some of the more tangible and intangible um, challenges were with potentially rebranding. Um, we brought in third-party brand strategy specialists to help guide us through that that journey. Um, it's largely a, a Sydney headquarter-based um, exercise. Yep. Um, we involved the rest of the team and the organisation in that journey and, and surveyed them, um, as we always do. Yes. 
um, just to get their um, input um, into the into the process. Um, but probably one of the key um, drivers was um, what did Lime Patch stand for? And really, you could you could ask everyone in the organisation get a different answer, mm, uh, which is which is not not cool. That's just not going to fly. Um, the other problem was was very, very problematic in our mind was the pay. Yeah. Um, there's so many. Sounds like a buy now pay later service. So many payment companies out there: Afterpay, ZipPay, and the BNPL, and and many multiple others, PayPal, um, and the list goes on. We thought, well, we've got to break away from this, um, from this this group of the pays. Mm. Um, Lime that didn't really kind of, you know, have any um, deep meaning. Um, so the decision was made that, you know, in principle, it made sense to, to rebrand and reposition um, the business and what we stood for around this embedded, you know, finance solutions company that uh, and platform um, that, that um, you know, we could, we could um, all rally behind as a business. Now, it's very hard to find a name these days that <laughs> resonates, let alone, you know, has the right URL or... Yeah, or main um, or has the English name, yep. Yeah. Um, and so I think what will April become or what could it be? I think that'll evolve. In, in well, that's the wonderful thing about brands, right? Is our, our branding expert, Alex here would say they are a vessel, a container in which you place meaning. It's up to you to make the meaning stick to or go into that container and about, and it's up to you to communicate how your container, your brand name and your logo, which you know, is really only 5% of what a brand is what on. to you to communicate the rest of the meaning behind that. So yeah, when you're, it. when what you do and what you mean to your customers is, is no longer the same as what you started out with, then it, then it definitely makes sense to find a new container and allow you to hit the reset button and create new meaning on top of that. Yeah, no, really well said that, that, that's, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Lot of sense to me. And I think, that's probably it looks great, by the way. Like I love the I love the font choice and the colors, and um, and it just feels that much more mature, you know, business to business, you know, SaaS product, I suppose, as opposed to a consumery payment processor. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Thank you for the feedback. It's good to hear. What could possibly be next for the future? Uh, I guess you know what are you going to put into this brand container? Yeah. What's this space? Um, well, I think we, we, we've alluded to it even in some of our um, product positioning on the website, but um, we talk about you know, being that um, partner of choice, if you like, for not only um, brands and marketplaces, which have you know, we've built the, the foundations of this business on, but moving deeper into the, the banking and financial services sector as well. So taking our platform uh, and using it as a, an enablement um, suite, if you like, to enable um, banks and other fintechs, other non-bank organisations uh, in multiple geo markets um, to provide their own um, brand-first you know, embedded finance experiences. Um, I'd love to talk about one or two of the, the upcoming um, customers in that in that area. There is a bank um, in our in our um, in our sites um, on an international level that we're looking to to bring on board um, right. soon. Unfortunately. Um, can't 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 talk about it. Understandable. But, um, very excited. But you see a lot of activity. Um, there's plenty of research reports there around you know what a, how are banks going to participate in the the evolution of you know embedded finance. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we've seen Australian banks, international banks, all participate in more or less the same way 
in the pay by installments, pay in four um, kind of space. Um, and then we'll kind of think of that as, as I suppose, um, you know, version zero or version 1.0 of um, embedded finance um, for, for banks, that the future is around, for, for us, from our perspectives, around enabling uh, banks and other financial services organisations that are servicing, say, specialist verticals, um, to enable them with the technology and the tools and the data that they need um, to provide uh, more innovative, uh, more intuitive um, payment, um, cross-channel, uh, cross-device payment and embedded finance solutions, however the customers choose to pay. It's going to look different from one continent, one country to another. So in order to, um, I suppose, capture that opportunity in any of those given markets alongside a bank or another financial services organisation, you need a highly configurable um, platform that enables that organisation, say a bank, um, to move faster, to innovate faster, um, to put their, um, or really their, their balance sheet to work in order yes. to, to launch. And not relying on their own internal dev teams to build out super sophisticated software, you know, and reinventing the wheel. Yeah, and they, and they struggle with that. They struggle with that. Um, you know, legacy systems, legacy um, processes, um, lack of, you know, skilled resourcing, um, competing projects. You know, there's just right around the world, just about any industry, there's, you know, there's, there's resource, specialist resource, you know, shortages, um, you know, around the world. So we come in as really a proven technology platform um, with, you know, the, the, the crack team, um, that can work alongside your partners, including your key internal stakeholders, to help you move down that innovation pathway um, certainly much faster than you otherwise would, um, which offsets some of the risks involved in making that initial decision to you know launch a new product um, into into a into a new market, whether it's business to business um, financing or working capital solutions, or whether it's launching a new um, um, you know new company. Um, subsidiary within within the bank to service a particular demographic or particular geographic, you know, segment. Our platform is 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 designed to be scalable and flexible to to service any one of those, you know, a variety of use cases. Sounds very exciting, Josh. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Um, getting to the end of the episode, um, what's one, you know, given what we've talked about today, what's one big piece of advice you have to founders looking to grow? Yeah, look, um, I think in my experience, and and I've worked with a lot of um, and, and friends with a lot of tech tech company founders and co-founders. Um, I think you just you got to make sure that you're working with and aligned with you know, the, the the best the best people, the best team, um, the best team, um, the best culture, or the most durable culture. I think will will generally out out trump. You know, the best strategy so, um you know it's and that's got to be a highly you know collaborative open honest um dynamic team that you know is is, is prepared and ready for the long haul mm. you're not going to be there's no such thing as an overnight success there's there's such things as as five year six year and seven year and ten year overnight successes um um so i think you know make sure that you've you bring on board a team align yourselves with um, people you really want to work with that you can, um, when, when, when some team members are, you know, struggling or, um, you know, need to take a break, you need to know that, 
um, the rest of the team's got their back mm-hmm. and you keep, keep kind of charging on. Um, particularly, you know, if you're a startup, then that founder's journey can be really lonely and pretty tough. Um, if you can bring on a co-founder or you can, you know, help kind of spread the load in those early days and and, and also understand your, your weaknesses and limitations across that group, you know, have, be really open around that and understand, you know, what, what you're actually capable of achieving. And does that align with, you, with your vision? Is that, is that in sync? Um, yeah. Australians yeah. tend to, you know, we do punch above our weight. Um, but that's not necessarily a sustainable um, you know, t- team model. Um, and in and, and this environment where capital is hard to come by, um, you need to think very carefully uh, about who you're going to get into, into bed with uh, and get out of bed with every day to, to do, you know, do the hard yards with. Um, and even if you do have access to capital and you're lucky enough to have capital or dry powder, then nothing changes. You've still got to um, focus on execution and have the best possible team uh, on board um yeah. apart from that, my other um tip would be um yeah think very carefully about your capital pathways um understand you know that capital is not just capital um cash is not just cash you need to align yourselves with partners and investors that um you know, will come on the long long-term journey with you will back you through the tough times and the good times and they will so long as you're transparent and you provide yeah. um you know, plenty of updates and um, uh, and, and 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 honest feedback right. back to your investors around your challenges um, and your aspirations and and also you know your dreams. So make sure you develop really deep, strong relationships with with all your investors. Um, but yeah, that's that's I consider them part of the team, right? That's an extension. Sure, they are. Yeah, no, and then you be just, I mean, you've got aligned um, you've got aligned goals um, and. As you say, I guess the theme that I've taken away from our chat, Josh, is how important relationships are and how important commun- open and transparent communication is. Hold on. It's just absolutely critical. And if, if, if any of that, if, if you have gray areas or uncertainty, that's where problems can emerge. Um, and the more you have gray areas, your team, they're going to trust you and you can trust them. That's it. No, spot on, Cam, because you will have there will always be uncertainty and you'll have, always have choices to make. Yep. Um, the choices you make will and, uh, you'll hopefully make better choices um, if you've got that, that really strong um, bond of trust you know, across, your, across your team and all your key stakeholders. It makes right. life um, a lot easier. All right. One of the last things we do on Weird Growth is show and tell time. Um, what is your favorite tool or device or toy or process that you have in your life that makes your life better that you couldn't live without? Uh, well, based on my um, usage activity, it's it's definitely going to be my iPhone 13. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> Although, what do you find um, yourself doing on there more often than not? Uh well, I suppose it depends um, where, where my mind is at at the time. But yep. um, uh, WhatsApp uh, is, is certainly a, a key tool over just about any other communications channel. Of course, it's, if it's in the work environment, then then, then that can differ. Yep. Um, calendar is, is is also my to-do list. There's only so much time in a given day within that allotment. So I pretty much look at all of those. 15 or 30 minute slots and I line them for the day. I never get it all done. 
but I do try and you know focus on at the end of the day and say, did I get my number one thing, the highest priority thing done, or number two or number three? So the calendar gets a, yep. a lot of use and notes. Um, I'm a bit of a voracious notes um, taker. Just, just the vanilla Apple. Yeah, notes. just the vanilla. I've used various yep. other tools um, for that. Um, I'm thinking about getting one of the um, the actual digital notebook so you can write on literally paper in it. Oh, yep. Drives it into remarkable digital. or whatever it's called. Yeah, there's a, there's a few out there, so that's probably one of the new toys that might make it into the, mm. the toolkit. Um, email is thankfully um, yes important, but gets less less attention. I prefer more immediate communication, even just picking it's up the phone and doing. It's it. amazing how pervasive uh, WhatsApp has become, even beyond Slack and things. I suppose it's yeah. just the, yeah. The, if you want to do business in Asia, um, WhatsApp. Right, it's not email. Um, you, you you do business over WhatsApp. Yep, and you can do your group calls, group video, like it's almost replaced Zoom for a lot of the groups that I'm involved in for yep. group call. Um, and you know now it has the um, expiring messages, just like your, your signals and things, in case you're worried about privacy or whatever. So yeah, it's incredible how elegant and simple it is, but just how powerful it is. Yeah, yeah it's always good to just to know that you've got that double encrypted. You know, security there um, and the ability to you know, control that. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, immeasurably valuable. And apart from that, probably, yeah, you know, a couple of news apps, um, financial review news app, um, across that, um, and weather. <laughs> yes, especially when you're <laughs> in Melbourne, mate. <laughs> Willy Weather. Willy Weather is my go-to app. Yeah, that's pretty. That's, yeah, the um, visualizations with the wind and I don't know if you're into surfing or I something. am, yeah, wind, yeah. surfing, snow. All the above. Love it. Yeah. Uh, final plug, Josh, if anyone's interested in learning more about April, what should they do? Uh, well, go to um, meetaprilcom is the, um, the, the URL. Not april.com. Um, it's meet, as in M-E-E-T, um, which is a little bit more of a, I suppose, a human take on. Hi, April. Yeah. Hi, April. Meet April. Okay. Um, you can um, reach out to me via LinkedIn, um, DM me. Um, Willie Pang is our CEO in Sydney. Um, he's always um, available by just about any uh, kind of channel. Um, and the team's always there to, um, you know, have a chat. Love it. Mate, thank you so much for giving up your time today to be on Weird Growth. I really enjoyed this chat. I actually learned a great deal. And, um, you know, really cool to hear that early story as well around um, that, that early sort of phase of, um, display ads and back it way back in the dark ages, I guess, of digital <laughs> marketing. Um, yeah, really appreciate you sharing all that, Josh. Oh, you're welcome. Um, really uh, grateful to to be on the show, Cam. Thanks, and mate. And very much. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, um, and thank you all for listening to Weird Growth. Um, if you were watching this on YouTube, please have a subscribe or give us a thumbs up. Um, if you're on Spotify, you can, you can rate us as well, but yeah, thanks all um, for tuning in to weird growth. Um, I'm Cam Sinclair Ammo. Josh, thanks so much for your time again. Uh, and until next time, bye-bye.